Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. My turn to welcome you. If you are a guest of ours, I want you to know you are our special guest today. And I want to actually start with a story this morning. And it's a story that you're going to have to pay a little bit of close attention to. But it's a story that I think sort of um, describes a little bit about how the world works, certainly how politics works. A father tells his son, you will marry who I choose for you to marry. The son says, no, I won't. The father said, I've chosen for you the daughter of Bill Gates. The son says, okay. <laughs> so the father calls Bill Gates and says, I want your daughter to marry my son. Bill Gates says, no. The father says, but my son is the CEO of World Bank. Bill Gates says, okay. So the father calls the president of World Bank and said, I want you to hire my son as your CEO. The president of the bank says, no. The father said, but my son's father-in-law is Bill Gates. The president said, oh, okay. And that's how politics works. Now that actually was a pretty good joke. Better than most that I tell. But when you think about it, that really is sort of the way the world seems to work sometimes. And it seems like sometimes people are always manipulating things and manipulating people. And that our, our perceptions don't always match reality. And we think that we know something and we think that we know someone only to find out we know them on a really superficial level. And maybe all our facts and, and information is not exactly uh, accurate. You know, in the social media world where everyone claims 5,000 friends, more and more people seem to be having fewer and fewer real relationships. We have a lot of things that we know about each other, but there's less and less things that there's less and less people that we really know on a personal level. You know, every time some terrible crime is committed, the TV comes and they interview the guy's next door neighbors, and they always say the same thing. I don't know, he's such a quiet guy. Now, I lived next to him for 15 years, but but never really knew him. In the book of Philippians, Paul is going to make a statement. It is powerful. It is pointed. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Now, we could, probably should, stop right there. But Paul keeps going. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. We have been talking this year about grace. We have been talking about Jesus. And I want to continue that this morning. I want to talk about Jesus, about knowing Jesus, and some of the things that that involves. This morning I want to talk to you about some places that Jesus goes, people that Jesus meets, and gifts that Jesus gives. The places he goes the people he meets, and the gifts that he gives. And I want to do it in the context of some things that happen in the fifth chapter of Mark. Now, if you're here on Wednesday nights, you'll know that Dave Vaughn has been leading this great class through the Gospel of Mark. I've been out of that class for a couple of weeks. This past Wednesday night, I saw him in the back before class, and I said, so like, what chapter are you on? Like 11, 12? I said, no, we're going to jump into chapter 5 tonight. So chapter 5, I'm, I'm getting a sermon up on chapter 5. 
So really you have no excuse but to kind of know what's going on in, in Mark chapter 5 uh, here in the next week or so. But in Mark chapter 5, we're introduced to a demon-possessed man, a diseased woman, and a dead girl. And what ties these people all together is not only the fact that their condition all begins with the same letter, which for us preachers is very exciting. They have three points that all begin with the same letter. That's exciting you know, for us. Um, if I throw in a poem right now, my work is done. But what ties those three people together, besides that, is the fact that all three of those individuals are completely helpless. And they are utterly hopeless when we meet them. Mark's going to paint some really vivid images in Mark chapter 5. Most of you know that Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. Mark doesn't waste any words. He is very concise. He's very precise with his language. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, you really need to pay attention to the details. So we're going to pay attention to some details today as we go through these uh, encounters that Jesus has with these individuals. Mark chapter 5 begins this way. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, which means Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Has a very exciting, eventful trip there, but now we find out that he's on the other side of the lake. Now, for most of us, we read right past that and don't think anything about it. The people hearing that and reading that in the first century would have thought something about that. Because the other side of the Sea of Galilee was a place that... Um, that no self-respecting Jew would want to hang out in. In fact, Josephus described the area as the epicenter of pagan and Hellenistic culture. This was like the center of, uh, of pagan culture where Jesus travels to. They would have considered this area a very unclean area. Verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit... Now, if you're reading from an older version, maybe King James, it probably says an unclean spirit. Came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. So we know from verse 1 that Jesus is in an unclean area. Verse 2 tells us that he meets an unclean man who is possessed by an unclean spirit. Question, just take a wild guess. In, religiously speaking, do you think the tombs, the graveyard, do you think that's a clean place or an unclean place? A very unclean place, that's right. Uh, then we find in chapter, verse 11, that he is surrounded by people who are raising pigs. In the Old Testament, were pigs clean or unclean? Very unclean. So pay attention to where Jesus goes. He goes to an unclean area. He meets an unclean man with an unclean spirit living in an unclean place, surrounded by people in an unclean occupation. Now, Mark goes on to tell us that Jesus is going to cast the demons from this man's fascinating story. But for today's purposes, I just want you to pay attention to where it is that Jesus goes. Jesus is never afraid to go to unclean places. He was never afraid to deal with with unclean situations. And he still isn't. You know, I think a lot of people have the, the, the notion that, you know, if God really knew me, I mean, if God knew the real me, if God knew the things that I've done, or maybe the things that have been done to me, if God knew my thoughts, 
she wouldn't want anything to do with me. If God really knew me, He wouldn't love me. Or, or maybe He wouldn't love me as much. The places Jesus goes says a lot about who He is. Jesus is not afraid to go to an unclean place and deal with unclean situations. And by the way, when He goes, He doesn't flinch. And He doesn't draw back. He, he, he's not shocked. Jesus isn't shocked by the same things that shock us. There's no place that the love of Jesus won't go. And I don't know where you might be today, but wherever you are, I know that Jesus is willing to meet you there and lead you and love you out of some very unclean circumstances. Jesus really is the ultimate cleanser of the messes that we make. And as receivers of grace and as givers of grace, we need to pay attention to the places that Jesus is willing to go. But he's going to meet a couple more people in Mark chapter 5. Skip down to verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, he's, he's back now, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please, come and put your hands on her so she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jesus meets a man named Jairus who is not unclean. In fact, Jairus is kind of the opposite of unclean. He is a very well-respected Jew. In fact, he is a leader in the synagogue. He's a dad with a 12-year-old daughter and his little girl is dying. And for all of us dads, all of us parents, really, you can sort of feel the desperation through the pages here. This father does everything he can do to get Jesus' attention. Now there's a crowd there. Everybody's vying for Jesus' attention. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody's trying to get Jesus' attention. This father does everything he can do. Mark tells us he falls at his feet uh, in front of Jesus. He earnestly begs Jesus to come. I've got a daughter who's dying. Jesus agrees to go with him. But on the way to the house, Jesus meets someone else. He meets a woman. Now, Jairus has done everything he can to get Jesus' attention. This woman is doing everything she can not to get Jesus' attention. Jairus very much wanted to be noticed. This woman very much does not want to be noticed. Skip down to verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. I told you Mark doesn't waste any words. Pay attention to how Mark describes this woman. Subject to bleeding for 12 years. Suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. Spent all that she had. Grew worse. That's Mark's description of this woman. Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Mark is describing for us a woman who's not just bleeding out her health. And she's not just bleeding out her resources. 
This is a woman who is bleeding out every bit of hope she ever had to cling to. This is a desperate woman. For 12 years, this woman's been tormented. For 12 years, she's been an outcast. For 12 years, she's been unclean. And it's only getting worse. Levitical law says that this woman can't interact with other people. She can't be a mom. She can't be uh, a wife. This woman wouldn't be able to go to the temple to worship. She shouldn't have been in this crowd. She certainly shouldn't have been reaching out and touching Jesus. For 12 years, she's been sick, alone, tormented, rejected, with absolutely no human solution. No one can help this woman. Now, I want you to remember where Jesus was headed. He's on his way to see a 12-year-old girl who's clinging to life. But on his way, he's interrupted by this unclean woman. And while he deals with this woman, the dad, Jairus, gets some crushing news. Verse 35, when Jesus was still speaking, speaking to the woman, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Now here is a dad who thought he was so close. He had to think, this is going to happen. I got Jesus' attention. All these people, he paid attention to me. And somehow I've convinced Jesus to come to my house and see my little girl. He had to think he was so close only to get the news, your daughter's dead. Just, just leave Jesus alone. You know, we've come a long way in 2,000 years. I still don't think we've had a cure for death. You know, Mark chapter 5, Jesus encounters three people who aren't just at the end of their rope. They long ago let go of the rope. There's no rope left. These three individuals are so completely helpless and so utterly hopeless. They don't have an answer. Nobody has an answer. There is no answer. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you've been in a situation where I don't, I don't know, have any idea what to do here? And you seek advice and, and, and you pray about it and, and you, you, you know, worry about it and it's like, it's never going to get better. Nothing's ever going to change. And yet in Mark chapter 5, in these back-to-back-to-back stories, when all hope has been exhausted, when all hope has been depleted, when these people have absolutely nowhere to turn, Jesus shows up. And maybe it's because of their desperate situation that these three individuals um, have an opportunity to feel the presence and the power of Jesus. Let me give you a couple of implications of what's going on here. First, I mentioned that, that Jesus is drawn to unclean places. It also becomes pretty obvious that Jesus is drawn to desperate people. He just is. Read the Gospels. Read the, the accounts of Jesus interacting with people. Jesus seems drawn to people who are desperate. Anytime you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read about a group of insiders versus a group of outsiders... You know, a group of the social elite versus the social misfits or a group of people who seem to have all the power and status and, and all those things and all the people that don't. It seems like Jesus always sort of migrates to the fringes. 
Jesus always notices people that no one else notices. He's always noticing and reaching out to people who are marginalized, homeless and hurting, rejected, lonely, people with little help. He always seems to be moving towards people who are the most messed up. Maybe the people who have messed up the most. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose the foolish things of this world. He chose the weak things of the world. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, so that no one can boast before him. That's the heart of God. Also, these encounters tell us where true hope lies. And we kind of come right back to where we were last week. You can't read chapter 5 of Mark without realizing that Jesus is the only hope these people have. And Jesus is the only hope that our world has. Now, afraid sometimes we fail to connect those same dots. There's no human institution that's powerful enough to combat the evil, combat the brokenness that's in our world. It's only Jesus. Mark chapter 5, it's Jesus who has the power over evil and evil spirits. It's Jesus who has the power over disease. It's Jesus who has the power over death itself. Now I look at the problems in my life. You look at the problems in your life, the problems in your family, the problems in the church, problems in the world. The answer is still Jesus. Jesus is the answer. He's our hope. Which leads us to the gifts that Jesus gives. I told you I want to talk about the places Jesus went, the people he meets. I also want to talk about the gifts that Jesus gave. Question, have you ever been given a gift that you really didn't want? Never happened to you? Someone gives you a gift and you didn't really want it? I think Jesus is the master of giving gifts that people didn't want. I want you to hear me out on this. See, as humans, we have an idea of what we think we want. But pretty often, the things that we think we want aren't really the things that we really need. So over and over again in Scripture, Jesus doesn't give gifts that people want, but he's always giving gifts that people need. Jairus' daughter is on the verge of death. He begs Jesus to come heal her. Jesus goes with him. But of course, on the way to see this sick girl, he encounters a sick woman. She reaches out and touches Jesus. Jesus is aware that he's been touched, and he stops on the way to the house of Jairus, and he has a conversation with this woman. Now, I know that we have several health care professionals in our audience this morning. Let's do a little bit of a triage experiment. If two people are brought to you, one of them has a chronic disease that's been going on for a long, long time, and another has a very acute condition. Who do you look at first? Who do you give your focus to first? Do you deal with this woman who's been dealing with this issue for 12 years, or do you pay attention first in your triage decision to pay attention to this little girl who's clinging to life? I mean, this woman's been this way for so long, certainly not a couple hours isn't really going to matter, right? And yet Jesus stops what he's doing and has a conversation with her. You know, in today's world, he might be sued for medical malpractice, right? He stops to help someone with a chronic disease and kind of delaying getting to a little girl who's dying. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he stop 
interact with this woman, who is already healed, by the way, while this little girl is dying? I don't know. We do know what happens. You know, we know the story. We know that Jesus goes to the home of Jairus and actually brings that little girl back to life. Uh, chapter 5, verse 40. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Now, Jesus approaches the home and people are there and, and they're upset and Jesus says, you know, don't be too upset. She's just asleep. She's not really dead. And of course, they all think that Jesus is crazy. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying, holding her hand. He said to her, get up, little girl. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. Her parents were absolutely overwhelmed. I learned something this past week while I was preparing for this lesson. I've always read that passage and I always pictured Jesus walking in and very authoritatively saying, get up, little girl, and showing his power and showing his sovereignty. And the little girl jumps up, you know, alive. And that might have been exactly how it happened. But when Jesus says, get up, little girl, those are two Greek words. The little girl word actually is a term of endearment. It's the same kind of word that a parent would use for a child. And the get up is a term, again, that a parent would use for a child, not like a strict command. In fact, it's a, a term that a parent might use to, to awaken a child. So imagine it playing out that way. Jesus walks into this room, takes the little girl by the hand, and says, Honey, it's time to wake up now. Do you see the tenderness in this situation? We always talk about how much Jesus loved kids. Here's a 12-year-old girl who died. Jesus takes hold of her hand, says, Honey, it's time to wake up now. And her parents were absolutely overwhelmed. Yeah, I guess so. Told you Mark doesn't waste any words. So here's the thing. Jesus gives this father so much more than he asked for. This father asked for a healing. But Jesus is going to give him a resurrection. And I know that there are some of you in this room this morning that are going through some really tough things in your life. Now, I know there's some people in here who are going through some terrible situations. And maybe you're wondering, why does it seem like God is so slow? Why is He delaying? Maybe you're feeling a little bit of spiritual malpractice. Well, I've been praying so hard about this. And it's gone on for so long. You know, I, I see God working in other people's lives. Why isn't He working in my life? And it can be really frustrating. You know, why is God delaying in my situation? And again, I don't know. I don't know why God might be delaying. But I think sometimes what we call God's delaying is really God's perfect timing. And as hard as it is to, to understand, and I don't understand it, and I might not like it, and I can't explain it, but I do know this. God's perfect timing always comes from a place of perfect information and perfect love. What God does, when He does it, is coming from a place of perfect information 
and perfect love. I keep telling you, God knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing in, in the world. And He knows what He's doing in my life. And in my situation. And my prayers are not going unheard. God knows what's going on. And He loves me. And whatever it is I am praying, whatever it is I am asking, whatever it is I am imagining that maybe God might do, He can do immeasurably more than all of those things. Sometimes we ask for a healing and, and God wants to give us a resurrection. Three very different people in Mark chapter 5. On, on one hand, they have nothing in common. This demon-possessed man, he, he, he's scary. He's just a wild guy. He lives in the tombs. He doesn't wear clothes. He cuts himself. Nobody can control him. Nobody can contain him. The kids are all afraid of him. You got a diseased woman for 12 years, lonely, afraid, broke, pathetic. Most people are looking at her saying, well, better her than me. Then you've got this little 12-year-old girl with her whole life ahead of her. Two were unclean. One was dead. For all three, it appeared that that's how their story was going to end. For all three of those individuals, it appeared that's, that's the final chapter to the story. It's tragedy. And it's, it's sad. And it's heartbreaking. Little did they know the best part of their story was yet to be written. Little did they know the part of their story that they would talk about for the rest of their lives hadn't even happened yet. Little did they know that this tragic story, this tragic chapter that they were living was going to be completely changed on the day they meet Jesus. Three people who learned despite pain and loss and suffering or maybe because of it, or, or certainly through the pain and loss and suffering, that Jesus is willing to go to unclean places. He's willing to clean the messes that we've made. He's willing to meet and to love desperate people, to restore broken bodies and broken minds and broken spirits. These three individuals in Mark chapter 5 get to know the real Jesus. They get to know the real Jesus. And again, I don't pretend to know what's going on in your life this morning. I don't pretend to know what's going on in the world this morning. But I do know that our only hope is Jesus. And I want to know Jesus. I want to know His deliverance, like that demon-possessed man. I want to know His healing, like that diseased woman. I want to know the power of His resurrection, like that little 12-year-old girl. I want to know Christ. And I know you do as well. So we're going to keep growing and learning and maturing and allowing Christ to transform us as we get to know Jesus better and better. To love Him more and more. To appreciate His grace and understand that grace on a deeper and deeper level. This morning as a church family, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to wrap our arms around you. Maybe something's going on in your life. Maybe you find yourself in an unclean place. Maybe you find yourself wondering, where is God? I've been praying about this, and I'm, I just need to understand that His timing is not always my timing. Maybe you're asking for one thing, and God's saying, but I'm capable of so much more. Maybe we're, we've set the bar way too low 
on our expectations of what God wants to do with us and through us. If we can pray with you about anything that's going on in your life, maybe, maybe you just want to share some good news. As a family, we'd love to do that together. There'll be some people here at the front. If you'd come down and join us, let's stand and sing.